This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Statues The 129 white-robed sages who shuffle behind the scenes of this podcast production and provide funding for our every episode are not to be taken lightly. Without their Patreon support, we'd be out of a job. So when one of them slipped us a note in class the other day, you better believe we paid special attention. We read it over carefully, and were surprised that we'd never thought of the suggestion therein before. Surely this must have come up in some previous episode. We were positive we'd addressed it before, but as it turns out, we haven't. And we have to say right up front, we're against it. There is simply no reason to erect a statue to us at all. We're neither great war heroes nor characters of social, political, religious, or scientific significance, and we're not about to commission statues of ourselves, ourselves. Perish the thought. Let it not be said that we would seek or support such acknowledgments. No, sir, not us. A couple of bobbleheads will be fine. Oh, 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 I see. Well, thankfully for all concerned, our number one fan is here to keep us in check. She rightly points out that we haven't read the note in question correctly, and we can see on more careful consideration that in fact it says, how would you like to look at statues, and not, as we first thought, how would you like to look as statues? An important and significant distinction there, you'll admit. I mean, we'd have settled for pop vinyl figures, but, you know, whatever fine. We can talk about statues. The earliest example of a statue ever discovered is a statuette known as Lion Man, or to give it its proper German designation, the Lohenmensch figurine of the Hollenstein Stadel. It's helpful to know that there are three sizes of statues in general. Those which are approximately life-size, your Davids and your Venus de Milos, for example, are just referred to as statues. Those over double normal size, the Statue of Liberty or Christ the Redeemer types, are called colossal statues. And those that can be picked up or held in hand are statuettes or figurines, but only if they represent the full figure. So Lion Man, being a figurine, is a small full figure statue you can carry around. The Holenstein Staddle part just refers to the cave it was found in, in Germany. You'll be happy to know we can use a word from last week's episode in describing this statue. The Lion Man statue is an example of theriocephaly. It has the body of a man and the head of a lion, and is made of flint knife carved mammoth ivory. Archaeological excavation of Holenstein Stadel began in 1937, and just a couple of years later, geologist Otto Volzing unearthed fragments of the figurine for the first time. Unfortunately, since he made his discovery on the 25th of August, 1939, all further research and digging halted so everyone could go have World War II a week later. The site was filled back in and left alone until after the war. Way after the war, as it turns out. 30 years later, the Museum of Ulm discovered the original fragments in their inventory and went, Hey, wait a minute! Further digging over the next few years eventually turned up numerous additional fragments of the figurine, and in 2013, the most recent reassembly of Lion Man was made, revealing a figure about 12 inches by 2 inches by 2 inches. 
In all, thanks to carbon dating of the surrounding soil, the figurine is somewhere between 35 and 40,000 years old, making it the oldest uncontested example of figurative art ever found. Overall, Lion Man is a sort of yellow-brown old bone color, which makes sense. That's the color one gets from mammoth ivory after it ages a few hundred years, let alone a few thousand years. It's not nearly as clean and white-looking as all those Greek and Roman statues you see in museums these days. Which is an interesting point, because while all those Greek and Roman efforts are all pristine white by and large now, they didn't start out that way. Even brand new, they weren't pure white. There is now some consensus that early Greek classical sculptures were in fact painted, some more than others, in a variety of colors with a variety of pigments and paints. Naturally, over the long years, much of this color was worn away, or cleaned up, by people who thought they knew better, revealing the bare white stone underneath, and leaving only minute traces of the original paint and color. Starting in the early 80s, Vinzenz Brinkmann, formerly a curator of the Glyptotech Museum in Germany, spent 25 years examining these minuscule traces of paint, and determined they were original to the classical statues. The sculptors had intended for these statues to be colored and colorful. Recolored reconstructions of many famous pieces of Greek and Roman sculpture under the name of Gods in Color have been making a tour of the world since 2003. Honestly, there'd been some hints prior to all the modern research that the Greeks and Romans had used color to great effect in their statuary. Euripides, who lived from 480 to 406 BC, had written specific references to the colorful statues in his tragedies, fragments of which survive to the present day. In his play Helen, Helen of Troy herself, in the throes of the Trojan War, laments, My life and fortunes are a monstrosity, partly because of Hera, partly because of my beauty. If I could, I would shed my beauty and assume an uglier aspect, the way you would wipe color off a statue. Sculptures unearthed at the Ephia Temple in 1811 had traces of color still on them. But the question quickly became whether they belonged there, and if so, to what extent did they exist in the original works? Was the entire statue painted, or only specific bits of it? How prominent was the color? Were the colors bold and bright, or subtle and subdued? And was it just the marble sculptures that were painted, or were bronze sculptures done this way as well? As it turns out, incredible things happen when you shine ultraviolet light onto lots of ancient sculptures. Patterns emerge that are otherwise invisible as they fluoresce in the light. Places that once held a variety of paints and colors suddenly stand out, and it becomes clear just how extensive the painting was. Some statues revealed sections of leg that were covered by painted and patterned stockings that were so realistically rendered that the actual pattern would change in shape and size to conform to the bend of the knee or the shape of a flexed muscle. Colors were solid, bold, and vibrant. Bronze was gilded to highlight the shape of a face, and many statues had accessories like locks of fine hair worked in bronze that were attached to the statue itself. Properly painted, many ancient sculptures revealed details that were easily missed when they were nothing but pure white marble. Supposed minute scratches attributed to wear and time turned out to be finely carved eyelashes or subtle creases in the skin. Which makes it a shame, really, that it took so long to work all this out, because by then the damage had already been done. 
The Renaissance had already happened, and suddenly sculptors of the time decided that all sculpture had to be brilliant white with blank eyes, in imitation of the Greeks and Romans where once had been paint and color, in order for it to be considered right and proper art. And it all came down to some infighting between painters and sculptors at the time. See, both groups thought of themselves as the highest ideal art could attain. Painters would wave at their canvases and talk about the fineness of their details and the subtlety of their use of light and shadow and their skillful use of color and explain how that meant that painting was the one true art and everything else was lesser by comparison. Meanwhile, sculptors would show off the three-dimensional quality of their work and how true to life they could make a statue and then justify their lack of color and demonstrate how worthy their art was by pointing out how the ancient Greeks and Romans didn't use any color at all. And look how important and significant all their sculptures are. So clearly we're the best because look, bro, history is on our side. And since much of modern sculpture and figural art is based on and beholden to Renaissance art, and they were all hung up on the Greeks and Romans, who they thought didn't use color at all when actually they did, most modern serious figural sculpture is done in white or in bronze with blank staring eyes in imitation of a thing that wasn't actually true when it was first being imitated. Slap some paint on your sculpture now and people mostly just laugh. Although this is slowly changing, it's still 500 years on, not really acceptable as fine art and tends to fall into the pop art category. Largely, that's because when most people think of statues, they tend to think of one of two types, either the classical kind, as we've discussed, or the equestrian kind. Equestrian statues are the sort which depict a horse and mounted rider. Not just a horse, those are equine statues. Generally speaking, if some organization or individual could afford to have an equestrian statue made, it was a sign of great wealth and power. They were difficult and time-consuming to make, and so tended to be reserved for depictions of those who were very important. By and large, these sorts of statues were commissioned by governments and rulers rather than the general populace. Naturally, of course, Greeks in the 8th century BC had them, pretty much exactly as you picture them, though few if any whole examples remain. Most other cultures, however, didn't have free-standing equestrian statues on their own. Instead, they tended to turn up as parts of other sculptures, like the large reliefs carved into the sides of temples and public structures. It wasn't until the ancient Romans came along that free-standing mounted riders really began to show up in any great numbers. These were often commemorative in nature and featured famous generals, symbolically reinforcing the role equestrians played in leadership. It's important to note that here, equestrian didn't specifically refer to one who rode a horse, though that is certainly what the word meant most of the time. In this instance, though, it is referring specifically to the tier of Roman leadership just below that of the senatorial class, the equites. Individual members of the class were basically what we think of as knights and were called equis. They owned land and made up many of the senior ranks of the Roman military. Collectively, they were known as the equestrian order, and were expected to have a minimum of 50,000 denarii worth of property in order to qualify. This was later raised to 100,000 denarii, and as time went on, other stipulations were put in place. Primarily, they served in the cavalry, but many distinguished themselves in other fields as well, and so they got their statues in recognition of their service to Rome. 
Since Rome had such a large influence on the world for such a long time, the practice carried on down through the centuries in many civilizations of putting famous, important, or distinguished military leaders atop a horse and making a statue of it. But did you know you can tell how the person in question died by looking at the statue? At least in the US and the UK. Mostly the riders are depicted in a fairly rigid posture. Occasionally they'll have an arm raised, with or without a sword, but by far the most common pose for the rider is straight-backed and proud. It's the horse, though, that gives the game away. You'll find the horse in one of three poses. Either the horse has all its hooves on the ground, one forefoot is off the ground, or it is reared up on its hind legs with both front feet off the ground. And each of these have a meaning that is supposed to tell you under what circumstances the rider died. If the horse has all four feet on the ground, the rider is known to have died outside of and away from battle. If the horse has one foot off the ground, the rider was wounded in battle and died sometime later of his wounds. But if the horse is reared up, the rider was valiantly killed in battle. Isn't that nice? It's so handy and fairly easy to remember. It's also completely wrong. There is no real correlation between the posture of the horse and the fate of the rider. Sometimes, yes, it is accurate. But even more frequently, it is totally wrong. Numerous groups have looked into it, and it turns out that when and if the horse's position is accurate to the circumstances of death, it's almost certainly either coincidence or the result of a modern-day artist who thought that was how things worked. Honestly, though, statues are already full of genuine symbolism. And up until modern works, that symbolism was generally understood by the statue-viewing public. In most cases, you couldn't look at a historical, classical-era statue without seeing some sort of symbol meant to put you in mind of particular qualities, stories, or people. And Renaissance sculptures carried on this tradition as well. Since sculpture often combines elements of both art and architecture, particularly as the artistic elements used as decoration and support for the buildings they were in, it was important that a given sculpted work not only function and look right, but convey the right message as well. Churches in particular were keen to get the right messages across. Since few members of early churches were literate enough to read and write, conveying important church precepts was done through the art on display around the church itself. It's likely you already know that stained glass windows in Christian churches often depict essential lessons from the Bible. Everything from the Ten Commandments to the lives of the apostles could be seen in various windows to remind the congregations of the lessons and stories they'd already heard. These same themes were carried into the lintels above doorways, tops of columns, and various other architectural features to not only dress the place up a bit, but also to remind folks of the proper attitude and frame of mind to take during the proceedings. The same applied to statuary found around the church. Many saints and apostles had recognized and regularized sculpted depictions that told the viewer who they were looking at and what they had done. For example, if you saw a statue of a bushy bearded man dressed in robes and holding an ornate key in one hand and a scroll in the other, you can be 99.9% .9 certain that you are looking at a statue of St. Peter. It doesn't even matter what the actual face looks like. Those elements are enough to tell you who it is. At which point the story of St. Peter is brought to mind, and you are sufficiently reminded of the important themes and elements. Each of the writers of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had a symbol so strongly associated with them that actual depictions of them were unnecessary. 
which is good during times of persecution because just knowing the symbols associated with each was sufficient to make clear your subject matter without revealing precisely what you were talking about to outsiders. The emblems for each of them were based on prophecy as given in the books of Ezekiel and Revelation. Matthew could be depicted as either a man or an angel. Mark was a winged lion, Luke a bull, and John was often shown as an eagle. Church art showing them included these emblems, and when heraldry became a thing, these were incorporated. See our episode on the wyvern if you'd like more about heraldry. Other important Christian figures received their own emblems as well. Judas is, reasonably enough, represented by 30 silver coins. But others got a bit more to work with. Paul the Apostle is recognized by his long pointed beard and balding head, along with books, a horse, or a sword to represent death by beheading. Which seems a bit harsh until you consider the case of Stephen the Martyr, who, if you recall your scripture, was the first martyr of Christianity. He was killed by stoning, so naturally the only emblem he gets is three stones. Sometimes he's carrying them, along with what's called the martyr's palm, a palm frond used to indicate that the person depicted died as a martyr, and other times he appears to have taken up a promising career as a juggler, as the stones are balanced on various portions of his body. One particular depiction shows a stone balanced on his forehead just above the eyebrows, and one on each of his shoulders in total defiance of gravity and physics, which, fair enough, he's a saint. The same holds true in other religions and traditions as well. Wherever the poor and illiterate were expected to remember something, those in charge of having them remember it would use symbolism as an aid memoir throughout their art. As a particular example, take the Nataraja, a Hindu depiction of the god Shiva as a dancer. Recall, if you will, that Shiva is the three-eyed, four-armed deity often referred to as the destroyer in some sects of Hinduism and much of non-Hindu pop culture. But Shiva is also referred to as the Lord of Dance, and that is what the Nataraja is all about. If you've ever seen the statue of Shiva in which he has one leg lifted and brought forward, with his four hands all pointing in different directions and holding different objects, a tall hat, and a series of what appear to be flags or ropes coming out of his shoulder area, all underneath a sort of upside-down rounded frame, that's the Nataraja. Often it's done in brass. And the thing to remember when you look at the Nataraja is that practically none of it is what it actually looks like. Take, for instance, Shiva himself. The crescent moon on Shiva's forehead actually symbolizes a completely different deity named Rudra and the merging of it with Shiva. Shiva's throat is often blue in color, symbolizing the time another deity attempted to throttle him so that the poison he just drank on purpose wouldn't spread to the entire universe located in Shiva's belly. And there's generally a snake, drum, axe, and deer somewhere about Shiva's person that represents various other aspects of his nature. But when it comes to the Nataraja statue, the layers start with the actual depiction itself. This version of Shiva is performing the Ananda Tavana, a dance meant to represent the creation, maintenance, and dissolution of the universe. The art under which he dances is made of flame and represents the cosmic fire from which everything is created and destroyed, as well as the vagaries of daily life, as well as also coming from two Makara, Hindu mythological creatures that guard gateways, thresholds, and other important entrances. The ropes from his shoulders are actually matted locks of hair that fan out from his head, which, along with the bent legs, symbolize the wildness and energy with which he dances. 
Tangled up in his hair is the personification of the Ganges. In his upper right hand, he holds a drum, and the particular way he holds it symbolizes both rhythm and time. His upper left hand holds fire, again showing creation and destruction. And along with about a dozen or more other symbols, he stands atop a dwarf, the demon Apasmara, just as a reminder that evil and ignorance can be beaten back with a really enthusiastic dance. The statue is entirely built of symbolism. There isn't anything in it that doesn't mean something else altogether. You'd be hard-pressed to find anything more representative of things it isn't than the Nataraja. Notwithstanding everything we've just said, though, most of the use of traditional symbolism in modern statuary has fallen by the wayside in Western art. You'll still see a fair amount of it in some places, such as cemeteries or governmental buildings, but by and large, the modern trend in artistic sculpture is away from the traditional classical symbols and more towards symbols that are personal to the artist and may be entirely overlooked by the general public, seen and understood only by those who share a particular frame of reference with the artist themselves. Even so, modern statues still tend to represent well-known individuals of the present day. The shift, though, has been away from famous heroes of war or statesmanship or religion and more towards recognizable figures from popular culture. We can perhaps be reasonably certain that the statue at the Philadelphia Museum of Art that stands with boxing gloves raised in the air will be recognized as Rocky from the movies of the same name for a fair few years yet without the need for much additional symbolism, though if you haven't seen the films, you may not fully understand why it is where it is without some additional context. However, memories fade. Popular culture has an endurance measured in decades rather than centuries. And part of the job of the older symbolism was to provide key reminders about who and what was being seen. You didn't necessarily have to know exactly who the statue was. The reminders included were enough to tell you what you were meant to recall and why it was important. How much longer, we wonder, will it be before the little bronze man standing in the middle of a road in Budapest? One cigar holding hand to his forehead, the other in the pocket of a wrinkled old trench coat, an expression of bemused confusion directed at the bronze dog in front of him is simply referred to, thanks to a lack of context, as man with dog, instead of Columbo and dog. We suppose it's just one more thing. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.